0: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our global audience. Uh, it is an extreme pleasure, privilege, and uh, an honor really to be hosting this conversation this afternoon with you. My name is Dr. Abbas Barzagar. I am a student and friend of uh, Medina Institute USA for a long time and a student both of Ambassador Rasul and Imam Zaid Shakar here with us this afternoon. Before we get started, I just want to go ahead on behalf of Medina Institute, say assalamu alaykum wa and welcome you to the first in a series of global conversations on spirituality and leadership that Medina will be hosting. This will be taking place every Sunday for the next three weeks at this time, 1 p.m. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and others. And what we are intending to do with this series is bring into focus some of the national and international conversations that we're having in our global Muslim community around issues of justice, race, history, and most importantly, what our role uh, as Muslims are during this contemporary time and what our religion should be teaching us at this time about this and what kind of approach um, and and sort of orientation we should bring to the table spiritually and uh, emotionally, psychologically during this time. Today's conversation is about a global justice struggle one that needs to be you know, discussed in its history and its complexity. Next week we'll be talking about the role of spirituality with Dr. Hisham Helier, who will be joining us from Egypt, and Ostada Zainab Ansari, who is a, uh, a resident uh, instructor and scholar, Ostada Zainab Ansari, at Taysir Seminary. And then our third installment will be a moderated conversation by Ostada Zainab Ansari, but between Dr. Sayed Hossein Nasser. And Sheikh, Sheikh Mohammed al-Ninawi. So please uh, spread the word and bookmark your calendars to join us for these conversations, and uh, and make sure you contribute your ideas and conversations through multiple channels on Facebook. You know, through the comment section. You can reach us directly, and if you register for these, you can participate through their through our Zoom chat links. And so. Look, as is the case most often when you have two illustrious scholars and individuals like, uh, like the ones that we have before us this evening, it truly is the case that uh, both individuals deserve, uh, deserve uh, no, you know, no, they're not in need of any kind of introduction. Uh, they, do not, uh, they, they do not need sort of uh, a standard biographical introduction because their work, mashallah, mashallah, has, uh, has preceded them. But I will say that this is a global conversation. We have audiences around the world joining us. So I will just begin uh, briefly. Um, And I'd like to introduce both of our panelists today. And I should say, salam alaykum Ibrahim, Imam Zaid, thank you very much for joining us. But I would like to just introduce them by way of a personal anecdote, if if that makes sense. Imam Zaid, you don't know this, um, but it was probably uh, approximately 19 years ago, maybe 20 years ago when I had first taken Shahada and went into the masjid, committed my life to Islam, and I took a trip out to Berkeley um, for a conference that, that Brother Hatim Bazian was hosting.
1: Was your, your shahada valid? You're only three years old.
0: Subhanallah, <laughs> 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 awesome. I appreciate the I appreciate the gesture. I just turned I just turned 41, and I'm kind of having a uh, having a bit of anxiety about the aging, you know. So uh, so I appreciate the gesture. But alhamdulillah, I was in college and I wasn't raised as a Muslim. And so I, I actually went into the Masjid and took Shahada. And a few months later, I found myself in Berkeley for a conference on, on Palestine. Uh, and Palestinian rights that Brother Hatton was hosting. So I, I caught the Bart and jumped over to Oakland. And I, I believe it was Lighthouse, Lighthouse Masjid that I had joined for a khutbah. And uh, subhanAllah, the moment there, and I want to describe it. I didn't have a map. This was before the days of GPS. And I just had my kufi on and people on the on the bus, people on the subway, people in the street guided me to the masjid. They knew what I was looking for. Okay, so they guided me to the masjid. I show up and I hear a chutbah and the chutbah. I don't know, Imam Zaid, if it was you or or somebody else, but the chutbah was was referencing uh, Malcolm X and France Fanon. And these were individuals that I was reading about and learning about in my academic work. And I just knew I was in the right place at that time to understand this sort of mix between Islam, commitment to social justice, commitment to history, honoring of elders in multiple ways. And so Imam Zaid has been at the forefront for our audience, um, forefront of of carrying this international conversation um, about social justice, about religious commitment, religious principles for us, both in the United States and elsewhere. And is one of the founding figures of Zaytuna Institute but uh, for those who have followed his career uh, is also a towering figure outside of that context. And uh, about a decade later, maybe just a bit over a decade later, I was uh, in Morocco with some with uh, with our Sheikh Mohammed an and some students from Medina Institute globally. And I happened to uh, meet the South African cohort at the time that was joining us. We were visiting different Shukh and, and learning about Sheikh's, Sheikh's school at that time. And I learned about the great commitment of South African Muslims to social justice and the role that uh, certain figures in the South African Muslim community served in the anti-apartheid struggle. And at that time over lunch that I first learned of your name, Ambassador Rasul. And shortly thereafter, I came to the States and uh, and found out that Ambassador Rasul, a South African Muslim who had served as a as a as a seminal figure in uh, in the South African Muslim community engaging the post apartheid government as uh, as i believe uh, excuse me the equivalent of the governor of the cape uh, of the cape province and then quickly became uh, in his next you know next iteration uh, ambassador to the united states and it served us great on- honor to know that a muslim was representing south africa to the united states during the second obama administration and so shortly thereafter you and i um, began to cross paths more and and work in some in some ways, and so for our audiences there this is something of a in you know in lieu of a, a traditional biography, this is the connection and so tonight 's program this morning 's program is really about bringing these conversations together so i 'm honored again to have us I know that we 're in covid I know this is a heavy conversation, so to begin the heavy conversation i 'd like to just go ahead and start off with something something light if I could ask you both. Uh, Imam Zaid, I'll start with you. Uh, Imam Zayd, this is a, a crazy time. Obviously, most of us are confined to our homes. I hope you and your family are doing well. But I'd like to ask you, what are you doing as a hobby right now to keep yourself sane, being trapped up? And I know you're on the road multiple times a month, and you're a very, very active figure. So I can't imagine this has been easy for you. So what have you been doing to preserve your own sanity? What kind of hobbies off the grid stuff. I don't want to hear about, you know, scholarship or what you've been reading. You know, what are you doing for fun? What does Imam Zayn do for himself?
1: I, I recently moved. So I've, I've been unpacking boxes, packing and then unpacking boxes. Okay. And I've, I've been coaching uh, some, some youngsters in, in track and field. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, what age group? Uh, seven, nine, eleven. Oh mashallah,
0: mashallah. So yeah,
1: it's a socially distanced sport.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sure
1: is. Imam Zaid, were you an athlete? Alhamdulillah, I, I I used to I ran track and I played American football. I I have a screw in my shoulder as a result of playing American football. And
0: <laughs> what <laughs> position did you play?
1: Fucking I played my best position was, was running back because my hands were suspect, but when I, I shot up in height and uh temporarily lost speed they they put me as a as a receiver and so oh, I, I, then I got the speed back, so I don't think mm-hmm. anyone could cover me, but my hands were suspect.
0: What so. do you mean suspect oh, they were big enough what,
1: what? well, you know they I, I probably dropped more balls than they I gave that on,
0: they <laughs> get, they gave it they gave it on you sometimes all right <laughs> oh, that's all right alhamdulillah mm-hmm. well, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. I got my son in uh, flag football last year. He's been enjoying it. Same question for you, Ambassador Rasul. What, what's keeping you sane? I know like, you just said that you were traveling to the United States once a month, but I saw your name on programs in Europe constantly. I know that you, you're, you never stop working. So what have you been doing?
2: Well, Alhamdulillah, I think just before lockdown in March, I was doing the equivalent of 10 days a month of traveling globally. But Alhamdulillah, um, it has been a blessing and the COVID-19 under lockdown to at last be confined to one space. So there's been a blessing in in all of that. Like um, Imam Zaid, for the first time, alhamdulillah, I have all my books in one library around me. That's (laughs) so nice. Boxes all over from one move to the other. So it's all here. That's what I've done. Um, Packed them out, sorted them. But what brought me joy... Was actually to do a th- to reconnect with a thing that I hated because my father forced me to do it when I was young, and that is gardening well. garden, planting new things, building a rockery, um, tending to trees, seeing fruit grow on trees. it has been an enormous blessing. I it took me a lot of time to reconcile with it simply because it was. It was something initially forced on me. Now I'm doing it purely out of love. And every time it's a dua for my departed father, that Allah give him Jannah, inshallah, because he had foresight where I had none.
0: Mashallah, mashallah. May Allah give him Jannah and, uh, and yes. praise blessings upon him. And also I, I should begin by uh, by sending our condolences from the United States and Medina Institute to you. Ambassador Rasul on the passing of your dear friend Siraj Sheikh Siraj Hendricks, mm-hmm. uh, a luminary figure for all of us, and uh, and I know that the South African community in particular is mourning. And so, can uh, I?
1: Yeah, I've been doing a little gardening, also. Is that right? <laughs> share that, yeah, in common.
0: Okay. And,
1: and yeah, just and being in one place has really been a, a benefit. I think I haven't been on a plane since March 10th. That and, is, feels different, don't it? Yeah, I think it's the first time in two decades I've gone that long without getting on an airplane. So.
0: Yeah, I don't know how the two two of you do it. To be honest with you, I've been doing it for about two years. A lot of traveling for about two years, you know, between Atlanta and Washington D.C., and it's been it's been grueling. Um, I will say, I will confess that I also have uh, I also have attempted to grow a garden, and um, my I, I grew some peas because my daughter likes peas. And so I was, you know, as a father, really trying to deliver over here and, and get her some peas. And the bushes were growing, but I wasn't seeing any peas. And then one morning I found that the birds were eating the peas before they were really, you know, shaping up. So one morning I called my daughter over and I said, Talia, I need you to make some, some scarecrows. I need, I need we, we gotta do this. We gotta get these birds out of here. And she said, Haram, Baba, let them have the peas. They need to eat too. <laughs> and so and so now so now the garden for my daughter is now the garden for the birds on her on her condition so alhamdulillah
2: mm.
0: you know alhamdulillah so um, let's go ahead and jump right into it if you all don't mind um, uh, I'll start with uh, I'll start with you Imam Zaid, if, uh, if you don't mind I'd like to know you know what the struggle in South Africa against apartheid meant to you and means to you as you reflect upon uh, our challenges here in the United States of America, both as Muslims and as people of color, and in particular black communities and how they're dealing with this moment. What does South Africa mean to you?
1: Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, I think we're all in this together. That's, that's what it means. I had the great opportunity of uh, being one of the leaders of the movement to get our university Uh, Rutgers University, which uh, Ambassador Rasul mentioned at the onset, to divest from South Africa. It was a real struggle. And uh, we were also involved in uh, networking and kind of motivating the students at Princeton. The first American football game was between Rutgers and Princeton. And so there's a long connection between those two schools in central New Jersey. So we would go to Princeton and work with students there. Princeton eventually divested and also Columbia University. So, I mean, we, we took over the student center, shut it down, chained up the doors. Uh, uh, we, we forced uh, the administration to come to grips with us by threatening a boycott of, of, of the bank. Like the, the, There was a bank that controlled all the ATM machines on campus started a boycott of the ATM machines. And then we found out one of the trustees was also uh, intricately involved with that bank. And so we, we started pushing for a bank boycott. And then they, the university wanted to talk to us. So we had a campus-wide uh, dialogue, faculty and student, and, and uh, Douglas campus, those of you know Rutgers, And and so it was really an opportunity to do something meaningful for people who were suffering uh, in a land that was far away from us, but the struggles were intricately connected. You had Ford, Company, GM, all of these major American corporations that were taking advantage of uh, cheap labor, uh, non-unionized labor in, in South Africa to build cars, Uh, a lot of which were coming back to the United States. So I I think it's very important as you uh, have framed it, that we're aware of the international connections which uh, articulate uh, certain policies to the detriment of peoples uh, in various parts of the world, but they also create points of weaknesses that we can identify and then strategize to exploit those points of weaknesses to get uh, policy change Uh, here in the United States, so I I was part of a wider movement, of course, what we did at Rutgers or Princeton or Columbia was part of a wider movement, but it did involve South Africa, and I I would add very quickly, this is supposed to be a conversation. Yeah, please, no, please do, please do. uh, That uh, I think also the the inspiration of Nelson Mandela, just uh, one, the willingness to put his life on the line to risk imprisonment. And when we were young, we we didn't think about those things. It, it, and I can see that now in a lot of people who are, who are out there. It's just, we're gonna change the world. And my personal world is, is not even factoring into the equation. And so that kind of uh, daring and courage that Mandela exemplified at one point was very inspirational. But on on the other hand, the statesmanship after uh, ascending to the presidency of South Africa, that was also uh, inspirational because, uh, you know, we have our positions, but there are other people on the other side of the divide. And if we can't create a political space, uh, a political space is the space of compromise, dialogue and education. If we can't create that space, then the other side is just as hell bent on preserving what we might want to change. And if there's no political space, it doesn't augur well uh, for the future integrity of of any society. So I think Mandela really illustrated how that space can be negotiated, even when it involves uh, giving up some of the things that you might have initially fought for, for the greater good of the society.
0: No, that's actually, um, that's actually very helpful. Thank you, Imam Zaid, uh, especially, you know, this note about about this evolution and certain moments of compromise and dialogue, but just for the audience to make sure they heard that Imam Zaid was involved in, in, div- in the divestment campaigns you no, know to, no, we yeah. we
1: alhamdulillah we were blessed to be uh, amongst the leaders of, of that campaign
0: yeah no that's great that's great well, i think a lot of people forget you know the the illustrious careers uh, and service that uh, some of our, some of our elders and uh, and you know notables have, have really contributed so uh, ambassador Rasul, uh, if I, if we could hear from you what is the united states struggle for justice the civil rights movement the black power movement other kind of um you know uproars from the 1960s and 70s. What is that, what kind of impact did that have on you during your formative years? And how has that shaped your thinking about your particular struggles in South Africa?
2: Hmm. No, thanks very much, um, Abbas. And I am very, very heartened by the response of Imam Zaid, both in his leadership in the anti-apartheid movement um, in the <laughs> USA. And Alhamdulillah, thank you very much for that. And for thousands and millions of Americans who showed that the instinct for good is alive. But I also want to say I am absolutely heartened that Imam Zaid is an alum of Radgas because I have just accepted a position as a distinguished senior fellow at Radgas University, alhamdulillah. MashaAllah, so great. Great honor. And now that um, the connection with Imam Zaid is there, I think it's absolutely um, fortuitous and, and brilliant. But, you know, our linkages at high school, my activism started... In when I was at high school, and a lot of the inspiration for it came from the freedom songs that we sang in South Africa that we borrowed from the civil rights struggle. We Shall Overcome is an absolute anthem, and we have added our own verses to it in um, in, 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 in South Africa. Freedom Isn't Free is one that is as relevant today as it was in the nineteen. 19- 70s and the 1980s so we grew up on that i think that we were fortunate that we had in one person two personas i think the u.s makes a false separation between who malcolm x is and who martin luther king jr is they portray the one as a militant and the other one as a pacifist i think it's a false dichotomy because we had in nelson mandela for example the um the, 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 the chief volunteer for a nonviolent protest movement, but when conditions demanded it, he was the founding commander of the ANC's guerrilla army. And so it's much more contextual than it is in the personality um, that, is, that is there. I think that we also studied very hard what the key differences are between the civil rights struggle, a struggle in the USA, for African-Americans, for blacks to have equal rights, to have human dignity, um, to have human rights, and so forth. Whereas in South Africa, ours was not simply a civil rights struggle, but was a struggle for national liberation. We had an existent colonial governor, governorship um, over us that brought in apartheid. And so therefore, it wasn't simply about equalizing people. It was also about national sovereignty, that I think we were busy with, so we try to understand all of those. But we could see the same legacies of colonialism in both. In Bobby Kennedy, when he came to UCT in I think sixty-five, he made this ironic speech in Cape Town, in which is he, he he spoke as if he was speaking about the South African condition when he spoke about slavery, when he spoke about segregation, etc., and then he said. At the end of that paragraph, he says, "I speak, of course, of the United States of America." And so, what we had was we had Muslims in the USA who were the descendants of slaves, and we had Muslims in South Africa who were the descendants of slaves. We had the Koy and the San, an indigenous community that was the subject of a genocide in the USA, um, the Indigenous Americans what we call in films, Indian, American Indians, and so forth, they were the subject of a genocide. And both countries suffered discrimination and, um, and dispossession. And so I was very fortunate, um, Abbas, when I was ambassador, I was able to, in the year that Nelson Mandela was seeing his end, and when the ANC, the African National Congress, was turning 100, we used that year to celebrate Mandela, but to thank those in the USA. And it took me down to Bill Lucy of the mm. Coalition of Black Trade Unions and what they did. It took me to San Francisco where we honored the founders of the longshoremen who had refused to unpack boats with South African goods in the harbor. It took me down to um, John Lewis. Mm. who passed Yesterday, that's how I met him in Congress, thanking him for the way in which they connected the two struggles. It took me um, to St. Louis, to St. Louis, to develop um, the Malcolm Garvey, um, the, the Garvey Memorial um, Lecture, et cetera. So I was able to connect with all of these people, even the unlikely duo from the Republican side, um, um, Dick Luger from the Democratic side, Ron Dellums, who had come together to defeat Ronald Reagan's veto over the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act. And so I want to say that the connections are deep, but there's also discontinuities. If we confuse what African-Americans and Black Americans are fighting for with what South Africans were fighting for, we may have undue militancy on the one side or undue pacifism on the other side. And so I think we have understood both the continuities and the discontinuities between the two contexts.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ambassador Rasul, when you mention uh, Muslims in South Africa, uh, we had the honor of hosting uh, Fatima Mir at mm. Rutgers, and and so our paths actually crossed a couple of times. So I'm sure that's uh, someone that you're definitely familiar with. Her sacrifices in the movement.
2: And Fatima she, Mir was an an exceptionally inspiring person. She comes from an exceptional family. It's not an individual who joined the struggle. It was an entire family. Her brother, like Farouk, her husband was Ismail Mir, confidant to Nelson Mandela. She, the biographer of um, Winnie Man- Madikizela Mandela, etc., etc., struggle heroes in their own rights. But so you get other families, the salujis the Kachalias, and so we can go on, entire Muslim families join the struggle um, for, 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 for liberation. And they are the ones that have today, Alhamdulillah, their contributions have made the South African Muslim community one of the freest, most joyful Muslim communities, most integrated Muslim communities. Whether I speak of minority Muslim communities or majority Muslim communities, that's the blood that was shed the sweat and the tears that have created this kind of condition for Muslims and Islam to, to really um, not just survive, but even thrive under conditions of democracy in South Africa.
0: No, mashallah, mashallah. I'm, I'm wondering um, for both of you, Imam Zaid, um, aside from South Africa, what about this sort of international cross-pollination that I'm, that I'm trying to really get us to think about here? What other ways... What was an international framing for a struggle for justice, whether it was racial or national sovereignty or anti-colonialism. I mean, I'm, I'm glad it, Ambassador Rasul brought this up, an anti-colonial s- struggle against apartheid for national sovereignty, much different than a civil rights or you know, economic justice, social justice movement in the United States. That notion of continuities, discontinuities, any reflections or ideas upon that? Just kind of throwing it out there.
1: I think the the fact that both of these countries and then many others you could point to around the world were European settler uh, polities. So Europeans came into these areas, uh, settled these areas, brought slaves into these areas. And at one point, there, there was a struggle for Uh, political liberation in the context of the African-American community. So just as there was genocide of the Native people in South Africa, various tribes, there were genocide. 500 nations were virtually wiped out here in this country. And we're talking about coronavirus. The smallpox that was introduced, uh, most of it consciously and unleashed on the Native people who had no immunity, that was the greatest uh, biological germ warfare campaign in human history. And uh, uh, upwards to 90% of the the people, inhabitants here perished as a result. And so you can see a lot of similarities. Then there was a long struggle that involved uprisings such as rebellions, such as Nat Turner's rebellion or Denmark Vesey's rebellion, uh, a little further uh, offshore, the rebellion of the people of Haiti, to which succeeded the most successful slave rebellion in human history. Uh, and so there, there, even if we look at the discontinuities, we can see points of continuity in the sense that African Americans at the onset of this country were not just as was the case in South Africa, even though it wasn't a um, majority population, it was a significant percentage of the population were not citizens and were excluded and were enslaved. And it was a, a long hard fought, fought struggle that were and, um, uh, just as and there were those who assisted in South Africa, there were those who assisted here in the United States, the likes of William Lloyd Garrison, Uh, who really gave Frederick Douglass a springboard into the liberation movement. And Douglass, of course, would separate from Garrison and establish his own independent work and organization. And so the struggle was very bitter. Uh, The struggle resulted even in a civil war, the bloodiest conflagration that this country has witnessed. And that civil war was so deep that you had revisionist history. A lot of the monuments coming down, yeah. down in the United States, those monuments weren't erected immediately after the Civil War. That, no. if the Civil War were fought today, upwards of to 600,000 people were killed. Based on today's population, that would be over 30 million Americans losing their lives. So that intensity in that atmosphere, you couldn't put up statues of, of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, in the South or the North. The South was under Union Army occupation. These were the traitors who had f- broken away from the Union. Yeah, it's a very strange and, thing. Yeah, It's a, it's a, sorry, it's it's a, a very strange thing. Thousands of Union soldiers. Yeah, and this it's a, 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 was an early 20th century revisionist history that I, I would say personally culminated in the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, where he's showing the, the birth of a nation, uh, uh, a, yeah. a movie that glorified the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the White House. And, and so this is the context that those statues were erected. So people who, who are upset by the, them being taken down, I think, really don't look at the historical context that they were put up in the first place. And so there, I think there are a lot of commonalities. Globally, you look at the struggle in Palestine, you look at even the the, the struggle of the Uyghurs in terms of their identity being uh, systematically destroyed. Who knows how many are killed in the process. So all of these struggles, the struggle of the Rohingya in Burma being uh, ethnically cleansed from their native land, driven, Uh, out of their villages, their villages burned. All of these struggles have common elements, but I think uh, Ambassador Rasul, you made a very uh, brilliant and and I think probably an underappreciated point that we have to recognize though, despite the commonalities, there are very unique features. And if we extrapolate from one uh, in a context that differs significantly politically, socially, economically, then we can make a lot of mistakes that will set the struggle back and even possibly lead to its extinction if we're not careful.
0: That's actually uh that's actually really um uh, the the point that I think a lot of us fail at. I, I, for one, am very motivated to look at look at comparisons and contrasts <clears throat> on our international and intergenerational struggle. Um, but I do get a little bit concerned, for example, that. Um, we, we assume things, uh, you know, can be done exactly, you know, cookie cutter from a previous generation or from another context. And, you know, I used to have an Imam, uh, Ibrahim Kazaruni, uh, you know, who's now at the, uh, is it the mosque of America at Dearborn? He, uh, you know, he used to always tell me that a match can only really be struck once, you know, a match can only be struck once. And we have to recognize and appreciate those differences. And those subtle nuances, and there's some subtle, sensitive points that I'd like to I'd like to ask you both about. Um, one of the go ahead. Did you want to jump in? Some yes, nuances?
1: quickly, uh, Doctor Abbas. A match can only be struck once, but a a candle or a lamp can light a million other candles.
0: Ah, uh, mashaAllah.
1: And, and our Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he was the candle that lit our light.
0: MashaAllah.
1: Spiritually. And here's our example and his, his, the Quran that was revealed to him and his sunnah, are the foundation of our principles. And I think that's what's immutable. That's what has to be immutable. The principles of the religion that govern how we look at life, how we look at human society, uh, how we look at struggles. Those principles form that part that is uncompromisingly immutable. And when we compromise that, regardless of our context, our histories, we're going to end up in, in trouble in the long run.
0: So thank you, because I was gonna, I was gonna get into something sensitive, but I'll come back into it in just a moment. Um, you just, you just led into my next question, which was basically the religious foundations that guide us during this struggle. And so since you just made a comment about it, Ambassador Rasul, can I ask you about what reference points in our dean and in our religious traditions have really been foundational for you and for your community and for your peers as you've, as you've worked through these issues over the over the last few decades?
2: I think I was born at a very fortunate time and, and I entered political struggle at a very crucial moment because till the 1970s, 1980s, if you had a conscience, a political and a social justice conscience as a Muslim, you often had to step outside of the masjid, join another organization and live yourself out. And so Fatima, Mir and others all made enormous contribution culturally, religiously and by identity Muslim. But their contribution was through the African National Congress, through the Communist Party, through a range of Indian Congress, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. By the time we came in, we were fired up by debates around the revolution in Iran and, and so suddenly we saw Islam, unlike what the ulama had been teaching us about Islam being the set of rituals that you needed to nurture, Islam was the set of compliance tick boxes that you had to sort out and that you stayed safe. Suddenly we were thrust in this very charged atmosphere where Islam stood tall in the world as having driven a revolution in Iran. And that set off a number of movements, I think we were caught up in debates between those inspired by Iran, those inspired by the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, and we were finding ourselves in one or other of those organizations until they had no answers really to the issue of how do you enter a struggle and for what purpose. The one said Islamic revolution for an Islamic state, the other one had a far more evolutionary process of um, tar, Tarbiya and all of those kind of things. And no one answered the urgent questions of the year and now in South Africa. And that's where people like myself, for example, formed the call of Islam. Our first job was to say that we find values, as Imam Zaid says, that are compatible, even if there are differences in ideology and politics, but we can make a common front. And we learned, for example, from the Sira of the Khilful Fudul, the Coalition for Virtue. And we said, let us immediately affiliate to the liberation movement, in that case, the United Democratic Front, as well as Archbishop Tutu's interfaith movement, the World Conference on Religion and Peace and the Call of Islam affiliated um, to that. And we were able to be Muslim and be fully part of all of those kind of struggles and be recognized as such. And we were able to bring in not only the symbols of Islam, the when there's shouts of Amandla, Gawetu, all power to the people, there'd be shouts of Allahu Akbar. Um, we would also bring alongside um, struggle anthems. We would also do the Eid Takbir at the Janazas of the Muslim mm-hmm. um, and so forth, and reappropriate those kind of those kind of symbols um, for, 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 for ourselves. And for us, it was fascinating. You have this religion called Islam whose objective is peace. You have a Prophet وسلم, whose mission was Rahmatulil Alamin, a mercy for all of creation. You've got an ummah that is described as Ummatan Wasatan, the Ummah that holds the middle and doesn't go to the extremes. And so all of these things were telling us, and that kunuka bil qist, stand out for justice but not only a license to do anything you want for justice, it says even against yourself. And do not transgress in pursuit of justice. And so it was this conditional license for you to make sure that you remain accountable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this was a fascinating way in which we understood um, what Islam meant for us. And that was appreciated. And, And I must say, that my first time that I met Nelson Mandela was when he was a long-term political prisoner in Polsmoor and I was a political detainee in Polsmoor prison and the warden conspired for me to meet with him. Wallahi, he knew that there was something different about this generation of Muslims. He had a sense that we were fully Muslim but fully participating in the struggle which was different to what he grew up with, that you almost had to leave your religion in order to be political. Mm. He had the sense of Muslims being so inward-looking. They wanted to preserve the mosque. They wanted to preserve the rituals. They wanted to preserve the identity. They wanted to preserve themselves. And here we were saying, no, the future of Islam lies in how we sacrifice ourselves, how we utilize our symbols, how we activate the Masjid, not defend it for rituals only and how we give new meaning to the rituals. And that's the kind of religious foundations that I think my generation was really fortunate to be growing up and to be debating. And we, we, whatever differences we may have had with the Iranian revolution, it sparked a revolution in our minds and allowed us to rethink it, but to use the impetus it provided.
0: That's uh that's actually that's great because what I'm thinking here is that we have to have a goal in this exchange, in this cross pollination pollination and this kind of learning across borders and generations, what kind of things can be triggered. So I I, I really I really appreciate that because the hilf Fudul is definitely not something that you're gonna find in uh, you know, the books of uh of Imam Khomeini and Shariati and whatnot in the 1970s. And you're not gonna find very much of that in Ikhwani literature, and you're not gonna find it in Hizb-Tahrir literature. However, um, we find that that reference point um, is is foundational in a lot of different contexts. And it's ironic that um, in some cases, it can lead to empowering social justice kind of politics, the way that, that we saw with uh, with the call of Islam that you, that you and your colleagues established. And then in other contexts, that same Reference point can be used as an oppressive, or I'd say, kind of a subjugating and quieting and dissenting kind of program as well. Imam zayd uh, any comments or thoughts about uh, about those reference yeah, points, I about think those things?
1: Doctor Rasul mentioned something very important, and we we were also very much inspired by the revolution uh, in Iran. It 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 really I think sparked in Muslims a sense of authenticity translated into support for, for people's struggles. But I think what Ambassador Rasul, what you mentioned in terms of this dichotomy between stay in the masjid, pray, and, and focus on that part of the religion, or abandon, or essentially abandon your religion altogether and join the ANC, join the Communist Party, that, that dichotomy, I think that's something we're experiencing right now in America. It's, it's new because we approached it the way you approached it. We uh, joined the various organizations where there wasn't anything. We would establish it ourselves to, to police our communities, to uh, work to uh, assist the schools and orienting the children just a, a number of, of unique approaches we uh, saw emanating from Islam and being defined by Islam. And we, we never thought that we had to compromise, especially essential core beliefs, to be part of a movement, that we could bring those beliefs into the movement. And as you said, we can, when someone over here is saying all power to the people, we can say Allahu Akbar, all power to Allah. But we're down in the same street, and we're attacking, we're addressing the same issues, despite these different perspectives. So I, I think it's very important in this day and age because I I hear things that I, I think they, they they bother me. I have to be honest. When when I hear, for example, someone uh, justifying. And a lot of people wouldn't like me to say this and, and probably it's gonna generate a, a, a storm of tweets.
0: Like they used to say, make it plain, your mom's aunt, teach, but make it plain."
1: When, when I see people justifying Muslims uh, burning down something in rage, uh, to me it's unconscionable because our prophet said not don't get angry, but don't act on your anger. And, and, and when one of the foundational principles of our religion is the pres- preservation of private property, like the maqasid of sharia, protecting religion, life, intellect, family, and property. And, and so for, for us to just discard that and say, no, we're mad. And because we're mad, that excuses us. No, as a Muslim, uh, we're not excused because we're answerable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that doesn't mean don't don't go out into the streets. It it doesn't mean uh, don't protest. It it doesn't mean don't become angry. As the ulama say, don't act out of anger. Mm -hmm. But it does mean if if there's some folks from the black block or some uh, anarchists that are smashing store windows, I'm not gonna smash any store windows. Uh, if someone's throwing a Molotov cocktail into someone's shop, and, and it might, it, it could well be uh, a person that I'm, I'm advocating for. It could be the shop of an African American proprietor. I'm not going to throw a Molotov <clears throat> cocktail into anything. And so, our ability to bridge those gaps, to say we're, we're governed by principles, but we recognize the struggle. And we want to be part of that struggle, but on our own terms, we define our terms as Ambassador Rasul said, we define our slogans. We define the, the parameters of our involvement in the struggle and they're not imposed on us from outside. And that's authenticity.
0: Now that's, uh, uh, now, now, no, no, thank you. Now Ambassador Rasul, we actually, the occasion of our meeting and our first engagement together, was about some of the efforts that you played in, in pushing back against what was considered by some and many, you know, unlawful, extremist, violent types of behavior that was taking place by vigilante Muslim groups in, uh, in, in South Africa, post apartheid. But let me ask you both, there are certain moments like, you know, Imam Zaid, you just talked about, you know, we need to be able to protect property, and we need to not sort of act out but then there's certain, but you also said, and, and this isn't, you know, this is just a point of clarification. You also said that, uh, you know, the monuments, it's to be expected that the monuments would be attacked in this context. I, I didn't hear you say that we should pull them down, but it's to be expected that this would happen. And Ambassador Rasul, it's to be expected that if you have a violent system that's oppressing, that's, that's systematically oppressing and depraving people of life, both of you, are, you know, both of you understand the liberatory nature of force. I don't wanna say violence because it's liberatory force. Um, there are certain times where we have to break laws. There were just 90 people arrested and charged with felonies in Kentucky for protesting, sitting down on the lawn of the attorney general's home. That was breaking a law. Um, there are many laws that are being broken right now in the United States to promote this conversation, including the tearing down of monuments. So I'm not asking you to uh, sort of make a hard and fast definition, but religiously, how do we balance that moment? Both of you reference the Iranian revolution, but we know, uh, I know I'm an Iranian revolutionary baby. I was born in 1979 in the midst of the whole thing. Um, And it's in my blood and my, you know, my teachers and my family. Now, now that is a reference point that inspired both of you and inspired generations. But there were excesses in that moment. How do we manage in the moment these excesses? What kind of, you know, what kind of, is there a guiding compass that we can turn to from the sunnah, from the sirah, from the, you know, from the Quran to, to manage that balance that you both speak of?
2: Yeah, if, if, I, could, if I could have a first um, bite at it, I want to say that the South African context is very fortunate again. In 1906, a lawyer from India comes to South Africa called... Mohandas K. Gandhi is invited to be the legal representative of a Muslim whose lands have been confiscated and he comes here with all his learning to defend this man in court until he discovers that you can be the best lawyer but if the laws are unjust there is no legal representation that can make them just and win a case. And so that is when The lawyer becomes the Mahatma, the great soul, because then he starts defying unjust laws. And that's a strain that goes throughout the South African struggle. Under Nelson Mandela, the key volunteer for the defiance of unjust laws, he takes it to another level from passive resistance to what I would call militant nonviolence. How do you push your struggle to that edge? And and again, we are fortunate because in 1955 already, in the midst of this growing apartheid, the, the people of South Africa come together and draw up the Freedom Charter and the preamble of the Freedom Charter says, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. And so it begins to establish the moral parameters of what you are struggling for. It sets a vision. And... What I think we need to be able to do in the American context today so that we don't do it on the hoof. Someone breaks a shop window and we say, brother, don't do it. Someone attacks a policeman and kills him and we say, don't do it. This is not who we are. I think America, in the midst of all of the struggle, should have a conversation about what are we striving for, what are the moral parameters of what we are striving for, How do we do it? Because I think we learned out of our experience that there must be consistency between ends and means. We are not Machiavellian that the ends justify the means. And so you can't want a struggle for peace and drive wanton violence. You can't want a struggle for a non-racial future and mobilize race against whites, for example. You can't want a struggle to humanize society, but in the process, dehumanize your enemies. And so we don't have the luxury as Muslims, but as human beings, to be able to make a dichotomy between ends and means. We've got to find a consistency. And even when the ANC, under Nelson Mandela's leadership, formed um Konto Esizwe, our guerrilla army, the army was under strict instructions that civilian life was sacred, that our attacks were on government and army installations and only army personnel are, are, are fair game um, for you. And when that was transgressed by a enraged operative of the ANC, the president of the ANC would be apologizing for that. And that's why it was few and far between. You don't sort this out afterwards and you don't make it a point of contention in the struggle. You've got to have a conversation. You can't just tweet and like and, 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 and um, forward in a struggle like this. You've got to pause and you've got to ask, who are we? What are we about? What are the instruments of the struggle? What are the moral parameters? Where do we go? And where do we not go? So that these r- rules of engagement are set before um, we all become responsive um, to, 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 to outrageous and things which weaken the moral foundations of our struggle.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, uh, that's huge, thank you. Yeah, uh, you know,
1: you asked specifically about the, the case in Louisville, Kentucky, I think, uh, people were sitting on the, uh, I think the Attorney General's lawn, they were sitting on his lawn, they weren't burning down his house. Yeah. I think we should make a distinction as, as Ambassador Rosu did between civil disobedience and wanton destruction of private property. Even the monuments, the monuments were public property, not private. No one's going in museums where many of these monuments are being placed and, and throwing blood on the monuments in the museum. I'm I'm not trying to weigh in on that issue. I think That's part of a deeper conversation. As I mentioned, I understand the context that went up. It was terrible. It it was a result of, to to use the terminology of of those people primarily in the the South, putting, to speak euphemistically, putting black folks back in their place. After the Ku Klux Klan and the red shirts and and a campaign of lynching that uh, one of our great, great uh, uh, American heroes, Ida B. Wells, uh, an incredible lady, single handedly struggled, to, almost single handedly struggled to, to, uh, to turn back this campaign of lynching. It was after all of that that these monuments were almost celebratory. We have put these people back in their place. Yeah. We'll call After the gains of Reconstruction, we saw uh, black governors and black senators, congresspeople, black control of, of state legislatures, et cetera. So turning all that back was now being celebrated by these monuments. So to me, they went up in a despicable context. Now how they come down, you don't hear me coming in on, on people doing this, but I'm, I'm speaking from a position of this is something we have to reflect on because there are two sides to every struggle. And there, and there are those people sitting on the fence. And we have to be very careful that a lot of those people sitting on the fence who, through proper uh, education, proper encouragement, and and proper moral examples can be won over to our side. Uh, Otherwise, they can be very easily pushed to the other side because you have demagoguery that's exploiting this situation. And as a result, this country is polarized in ways that it hasn't been Since the Civil War. So, in in certain, uh, to to a certain extent. And and so, we have to, as Ambassador Rasul mentioned, we have to discuss these things. We have to strategize in light of the existence that there is an enemy out there. And that enemy has a lot of power. And that enemy has a long history of exploiting divisions between people for his or her advantage. And, and to be ignorant of that or to pretend that it doesn't exist is sheer folly. And, and that folly will manifest itself in, in very unpleasant ways. And, and so if we're, if we're talking about, uh, as some people do, the, the, the rise of uh, left wing and far left politics in this country, that rise can be accompanied by a, a, a fascist, yeah. and I'm talking in the Mussolini-Hitler sense of the word, government even. And, and so if that's the consequence, we have to be very judicious and very carefully how we proceed, because this is not, politics is not a zero-sum game. Well, many, many, many people all, think it is. All or all, many people, they do think it is and they act like it. Uh, but when you approach it like that, you get extreme reactions mm-hmm. to uh, even noble uh, attempts and noble movements.
0: No, absolutely, you know, this is uh, this is very helpful. Both of, you, both of you, and there's a consensus, our audience should know there's a consensus here. Did Hitler del- arrive in a vacuum? Hitler was was able to exploit
1: the rise of the communist party and Hitler was able to exploit aspects of social democracy to win people over to his cause. So I'm not, I'm not condemning the communist party. I'm not condemning social democracy, but I'm saying in the context of the Weimar Republic, in the context that brought Hitler to power, it wasn't a vacuum. Hitler was able to respond, to exploit certain moves that were made by those who opposed him.
0: But, and and it's, it's, but you're also saying that extremism begets extremism. I'm hearing these kind of things from both of you, is that is that transgression can result in transgression on the other side, and, and that we need deliberation to guide us through these through these processes. Um, you know, sorry to cut you off there, Iman I mean cut me uh, off wise because I was No, 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 no. Excuse me, no, excuse me. Uh because there are some, you know, some questions in the queue that I want to get to before I still have one or two more that I want to ask you all directly. But the consensus, if I if I can represent properly, is that both, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, there needs to be deliberation, discussion. Conversations about context specific actions, about when justice has to be upheld, even if it goes against certain kind of small laws or regulations. I don't hear anything here about breaking laws or 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 transgression or fighting or anything like that, but to measure the moment by an innate sense of justice that's provided to us outside of man-made laws. I think that's extremely important. if, if I could, you know, I, I just want to make sure that we have a touch point for our, for our folks.
2: Yeah. No, I, no, I, I think... Yeah, it's done. No, no, no. No, no. I spoke last. No, I want to say that we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in globally. In the U.S., it has the most visibility, but across the world, there is something called what I would call the Black Condition, And the black condition affects everyone touched by colonialism. Whether you are brown in India or whether you are black in Africa or whatever, when colonialism has touched you, it has left its genetic framework behind, either repression through local elites or settler colonialists, like in the United States of America, who have normalized the, 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 the legacy of colonialism through discrimination and disposition and militarism. Militarism, both local and global. And so what we are saying is that something is fundamentally wrong in the world today and that it needs to be opposed. We need a movement for social justice. We need a, mo- a movement for racial equality and integration and the humanization of all um, people. And You can't make an omelette without breaking an egg. And the eggs that must be broken are those that are made of complete unjust laws that withhold people from, and and, and deal with both their lives and their livelihoods. I think that what has happened today is that COVID-19, it's almost like the straw that is breaking the camel's back. I think that that moment of, Lockdown has made people think about their condition. Yeah. The burdens that are disproportionately placed on Black people across the world. In the U.S., I'm amazed to hear that a 13 to 15% population is carrying an average of 33% of the infections and deaths of COVID-19. Yeah. And... It's there because they don't have access to health care. The comorbidities that come from malnutrition and all of those kind of things are weighing down. So there is injustice that must be confronted. Allah wants us to confront those, in, those injustices, but Allah sets parameters within which we must operate. Allah does not only set us parameters, Allah also gives us, I think, Surah Al-Fatih, the Surah of the Victory, is the quintessential art of war for Muslims. It's how to conduct struggle. Um, in the same way, Surah Rum, the Roman Empire, is the quintessential chapter on what to do when an interregnum, a moment of rupture, presents itself to the ummah and to people. And we've, we have to go to our references um, for that to know what to do with this moment. Otherwise, this moment will pass. If we do not, Imam Zaid, Direct the anger, the anger will find, like water, crevices into which it will go that may undermine the overall cause. And this Uh is the call for leadership. Uh And so leaders cannot abdicate and say, oh, the followers are going wild. Leaders have to give direction, strategy, and content um, to the struggle as it unfolds. And we have to make the struggle for social justice against poverty, against inequality, against bad health, against maleducation, et etc., et We've got to prioritize those struggles as the precondition for, 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 for raising um, a new moral vista for our people.
1: Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, I, would ri- I would add to that list the struggle against militarism also and and the struggle for ecological justice. I think those, those are fundamental and and we, we absolutely have to do that and I think one of the roles of leadership is saying those unpleasant things that people don't want to hear in the moment and trying to direct people in dr- directions that aren't necessarily popular in the moment. I think that's that's a function of, of, of leadership also uh, I, I would add to uh, what you very astutely mentioned about the, the COVID-19 situation here. I think that it, it illustrates an aspect of Islam that shouldn't be lost on us. And that is uh, a lot of this recent spread in, in, in southern states, western states, not exclusively uh, Republican. California is generally considered democratic. It, definitely when you get away from the coast, it can be very uh, red, as they say, but uh, it's, it's, an, it's an, uh, a, a, an exclusive focus on rights. You cannot tell me that I have to wear a mask because imposing a mask on me is stripping me of my, my individual freedom and liberty. And This is the argument of the anti-mask uh, people and, and, and that's being pushed by the Republican Party. Uh, despite some recent token uh, uh, efforts in the, in the other direction. What about your responsibility to the public? The mass doesn't protect you as much as it protects the public from you. And, and this is where Islam is so important. Islam emphasizes rights balanced with responsibility. That's, that's part of our position as the middle nation. We're, we're not obsessed with rights to the point that we uh, abandon our responsibilities and we're not obsessed with our responsibilities to the extent with that we balance the pursuit of our rights and the rights of others. We're a balanced nation. And, and so as Muslims, we have to exercise the pursuit of rights civically, socially, humanly in light of our responsibilities to our societies. And if, if, if whenever our rights and securing our rights are going to threaten to tear our societies down, then our responsibilities have a priority over our rights. Because first and foremost, we are members of a society. And some people say this is a distinction between Islam and let's say Western democracy. And Western liberalism, liberalism prioritizes the individual rights. I have a right to define my gender. I have a right to do this, that, or the other. Whereas Islam says, no, you first and foremost have a responsibility. Even uh, social justice, you have a responsibility and your wealth is a right. So you can't just spend, 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 enrich yourself without considering your responsibility towards the poor. And so it's, it's a balancing act that I think in this moment we have to, to emphasize and not to point and say this group or that group have gone to extremes, but to say if we don't provide a framework that provides a context for balancing rights and responsibilities amongst other things, then we can end up in the extremes that, that, that you mentioned,
0: Dr. Abbas. Jazakallah khair. I'd like to uh, thank you, Imam Zaid. I'm going to ask you all, um uh, a brief question uh it's precise and then i I'd, I'd like to move on to some questions from our our audience that alhamdulillah actually overlap with some more than i had and uh this one is about you know Im- Imam ed you talked about bringing people into uncomfortable conversations and sort of pushing that discussion and ambassador rasul you mentioned uh having to crack eggs for omelets well you know let me ask you about our own communities that often segments of our own communities stand in the way often of what it seems to be, seem to be very common sense pursuits of justice or struggle, or, I mean, these are things that shouldn't really be a discussion, but the conversation about Muslims in South Africa, uh, like you said, you and your peers had to break a tradition of communitarianism and isolation. And it was often the case that, that not just South African Muslims, but, but um, Muslims and South Asians all across the East Coast of Africa historically had played not a very savory and rosy role in the history of colonialism. Oftentimes they were the implementing middlemen. And the same thing Imam Zeid in our communities, the history of liquor stores and corner stores, Palestinian owned, and then you know Daisy owned, Arab owned, you know, you know corner stores in hoods, you know, when, when the movements that were taking up the name of Islam to clean the neighborhoods up from these elements, we had the same, you know, same time people changing their name from, you know, from John to Muhammad, you know, we're changing their name from Muhammad to Mo on the other side. We have conflicting forces within our community. So I'm going to ask you, it's a touchy subject because right now we have a lot of intra-Muslim antagonism and tension race-based, sometimes immigrant, ethnic, sometimes sectarian. It's different in different places. But we're going to ask you not to reflect upon the whole issue, but could you give me a success story of where you think some of that tension has been overcome? Something from your own past. I mean, take a second to think about it, but something from your own lived experiences where that issue was confronted and maybe overcome. Because I'm I'm in desperate need right now amongst my peers and my colleagues to show good examples of how this has been affected. Because from what I read in my, you know, from my, what I read in history, you, these, these problems existed, but we overcame them. And right now, we're struggling as, as younger folks.
1: I'll, quick, I'll quickly give you a couple of examples and leave the, the balance of the time to, to Ambassador Rasul. Uh, the way you framed it, to generalize, is kind of a, an immigrant, indigenous, Muslim divide, if you will. C- community struggle in the inner city Muslim storefront masjids in many instances I've been over uh, a couple of those uh, and then immigrants coming in selling alcohol etc uh, success stories are like in, in Oakland California we had a, a zakat problem a project rather where suburban Masjids are overwhelmingly immigrant based were sending their zakat to uh, the Lighthouse Mosque and other messages in the inner city areas. We're talking of um, hundreds, $300,000 three to be distributed amongst the poor Muslims in the inner city area. Uh, recently, you had in, also in Oakland the Zakat Foundation, which is an immigrant based organization, distributed 35,000 pounds of produce in. Inner city, Oakland, amongst the poor folks, uh, uh, African American, Asian Pacific Islanders, uh, certainly Latinos, and Fruitvale area, uh, and so those those kind of, of projects they're they're ongoing, uh, they're consistent, and they're, they're very numerous. I think we we have a tendency to to magnify. The negative. Sometimes you're like the news media. If it bleeds, it leads. I appreciate pointing these various horror stories that do happen and occur uh, between our communities, either inner city non-Muslim communities and immigrant-based Muslim communities, or immigrant-based Muslim communities and uh, inner city Muslims. But there are there are all kinds of su- success stories. Most uh, recently, and I'll stop here. I said I'd be brief. Uh, uh, an African-American family of 10, of, of 11 rather, husband, wife, nine children, uh, the Gray family, Omari Gray was, had a head-on collision and a launch good campaign was, was started to raise money to assist his, his uh, what people thought would be his widow in a couple of days, but he's, he's actually recovering uh, miraculously and nine children.
0: Yes,
1: In in 72 hours, a million dollars was raised. Most of that money came from so-called immigrants. So there are all kinds of things we can point to that indicate that despite the, and I'm not dismissing it, despite real instances of negative behavior, exclusivist behavior, marginalizing behavior, there are numerous uh, success stories that I could spend the balance of the program
0: talking about, but I said I'd be brief. And- no, mashallah. Uh, thank you very much. No, thank you very, very much. No, thank you. And salute to uh, to Halil uh, Demir of Zakat Foundation uh, for for leading that work. Um, and also for you know Dr. Hassan Bagby, I've heard him mention some of these Zakat programs as well. And uh, inshallah, we can magnify those stories as well. Ambassador Rasul. Comments on, on overcoming difficult challenges in our community.
2: Look, I think that the one thing we got right in South Africa in the nineteen eighties, particularly driven by the call of Islam, was that we changed the paradigm in the sense of saying that before Muhammad sallallahu alaihi was Rasulullah, the messenger of Allah, he was Al Amin, the trustworthy. There are so many Muslims who want to be messengers without having done the hard work of winning trust. And the biggest giveaway of trust is what you do amongst yourselves. If you are sectarian with Shias, how will Christians believe that you will be good with them? If you are sectarian with Sufis, You cannot convince other Americans or other South Africans that you are a trusted partner if you can't be trusted within your own community. To be fair and just and united. So what we need to understand, this ingredient of trust is the central ingredient and that is why Rasulullah was al Amin, the trustworthy that made his case when he came out with Nubuwa. It made it 10 times more difficult for Quraysh to reject his message because they had invested trust in him because he had acted one way within his community and another way with other communities throughout his life. And so if you hold that as a central principle and we can judge that, how Muslims behave, Mm. Then you begin to get the template that will tell you what are the chances of their success. Because sometimes we are good at pretense. Our charities want to exchange food for faith. The niya. The action is good. The niya may be suspect and be seen through once people are away from the jaws of hunger.
0: Yeah, and we could and we criticize Christian missionaries for doing the same thing in our in our in our parts of
2: the world, right? We are in a competitive relationship with those Christian missionaries rather than in a morally superior position to them. We emulate them rather than teach a new way of of doing things. And so in South Africa, for example, it was precisely because we were trusted that the Mandela cabinet, the first democratic one, had a large number of Muslims in both cabinet and in parliament because we were al amin the trustworthy. We had paid in blood and we had contributed in intellect and in sweat. The second thing is that Muslim professionals post-revolution really occupied the public sector because we have a reputation of preferring the private profit-making sector, which is your right. But so many Muslims chose the public hospitals where they worked under enormously difficult conditions. And so the trust factor grew. We were a force for good. Thirdly, Muslim charities and philanthropies, I would say without any fear of contradiction that some of the most trusted philanthropies with even government money are Muslim ones. Gift of the givers, the funds um 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 etc. etc. The the, the the fourth one is even in this debate around COVID and the closure of masajid before it became a matter of compliance with government it was a debate within the Muslim community where a minority absolutely insisted on their right to have the masajid open to do what they wanted to have eid and Go for Jumwa, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, on their own terms. It wasn't the government who slapped them down with regulations. It was a debate inside the Muslim community in which the majority understood the hurt and the injury and the qab, the spiritual vacuum that would emerge from the closure of the masajid. But they argued for it on the basis not only of public health but on the basis of theological precedent. And that meant, again, for the majority of South Africans that we were a trustworthy force that prioritized the, the maslaha, the general good, above the, 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 the good of only our own community. And, and I think that those are seminal examples of how Muslims can be a force for good, but it starts with purifying your intention it then means earning trust, and it then means doing the good. So it is vertical worship and horizontal service. And the consistency of the two are absolutely crucial if we are going to, to be able to make a general impact on a world looking for answers in the pandemic and the dystopia that we live in today.
0: Masha'allah, jazakAllah l'akhir, jazakAllah Okay, I should
1: I quickly uh, say that this closing of the masjid, this is an example of the prioritizing responsibilities over rights.
0: Perfect. No, it's perfect. I, it's actually, it's perfect. And I, I love the synergy that's, uh, that's unfolding between the two of you. The maslaha, the responsibility to society, uh, the framings that both of you are providing uh, in terms of integrity and responsibility. First, by our own measures as Muslims, vertically, I think speaks a tremendous amount. So much of the discourse today is a kind of tit for tat. Well, they're doing it, so we'll do it, or we're enraged and it's worth it in the moment, or my experience says this and therefore it's truth. But both of you, mashallah, have, uh, have lined up certain principles for us to think through and uh, we'll definitely be reflecting upon these. Uh, just so that you know, I'll be teaching some courses for our students at Medina Institute Um, in coming weeks and I'll be having one of their assignments to read and reflect, you know, to listen and reflect upon this discussion. Um, I'd like to move to a a couple of questions and I wanna be respectful of both of your time. So I will try to cap the the close here at another, you know, 10, maybe maximum 15 minutes. You both have been very, very generous with your time and energy. So uh, we have one question coming that's very much related to the last one that I asked you about our own communities. And that is, there is a tremendous amount of discourse in certain circles of uh of our communities both at the lay level and also at the level of those that have knowledge and that is that race-based discussions um, should not exist within islam that islam de facto is a is a um is a what, what do we say a colorblind religion and so how is it that we respond to this to this promise that islam provides us which is to be free from these asabiya and and other regulations at the same, you know, at the same time that we're trying to prioritize conversations around race and justice. So how do you respond to somebody who says Islam is colorblind? Take it somewhere else, brother.
2: Maybe let me, (laughs) let me start. And then Imam Zaid could, 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 could pick up on it. I, I had the occasion two weeks ago to do a khutbah, um, to a virtual one, um, to to maps in seattle on on this issue and it made me study again very closely the khutbatul wada now if there is no place for race based discussion and discourse in islam the prophet ﷺ recognized a malady within the ummah that time and for all times the one in which arabs may think they are superior to non-arabs and vice versa and the ones in which whites would think that they are superior to blacks and blacks superior um, to whites, and warned against it and made that part of the whole bundle of a very resistant jahiliya within, within the Muslim mindset and within the human framework um, as a whole. And for as long as that element of jahiliya. Exists whether we eradicate, in, inshallah, we should eradicate it among Muslims, but we haven't. Let's just be honest about that, because some of the worst racism I have seen is when an Arab uh, moves because an African American Muslim has come to sit next to him, even in the masjid. I've seen that. Yeah, of course. I have seen the superiority that the Arab shows in the name of uh, Tajweed pronunciation to an African-American leading the Salah. I've seen that. But let's hypothesize that this may be eradicated for as long as it is not eradicated as a legacy of colonialism, we are duty-bound to have to combat it on the instruction of that Khutbatul Wada' the final sermon of the Prophet, sallam, that we've got to equalize the relationships, not only in terms of the discrimination that is faced, but inherent dispossession that is underpinning it.
0: Subhanallah. And I'm
1: Yeah, I think that the Prophet Wasallam, recognized that these issues existed, as Ambassador Rasul mentioned. And as he mentioned, he prescribed a cure. So when <coughs> Abu Dhar, radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased, said to Bila, yabnas Oh you, and di- disparagingly, oh you, son of a black woman. The Prophet ﷺ, uh, when he was uh, informed of that, he addressed Abu Dhar and Tamrun or fi jahiliyah you are a person that still has vestiges of un-Islamic character within you. And, and so the, the, the beauty is that he, he addressed it. He, he addressed it. He didn't say, uh, you, you know, this doesn't exist, Bilal. You know, he, he probably meant something else. No, he addressed Abu Dhar. You have un-Islamic character within you. And the, the term he used was jahili. And I think it's very important for us to use our terminology, because Jahiliya, which is a particular strain of ignorance, can be cured with knowledge. He, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when some of his companions complained that they couldn't get married because they had dark complexion, either from the dark-skinned Arabs or from the African companions, he would send them to aristocratic, light-skinned, so-called Arab families and tell, marry your daughter to, the Prophet said, marry your daughter to me. Mm. And so he engaged in, and again, we could discuss this. I I wrote a paper about this issue that was fairly lengthy, but he engaged in policies to address this issue. How can you, in the the farewell sermon, when he talked about the equality of people, regardless of their, their racial or ethnic characteristics, how would you address something that doesn't exist? How would you it create policies around a non-existent issue. So it existed in the best of communities and the best of humanity addressed it specifically. And so that, that's instructive for us, that if it can exist in the best of communities, the community of the Prophet wasallam in Medina, is your beautiful Medina Institute logo there, the dome, it could exist in any society.
0: Yeah, that's and a great. The reminder.
1: solution that the Prophet gave, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a solution based in policy and a solution based in personal reformation. Abu Dhabi, fix yourself. Muslim society, fix yourself. Those are the solutions that we we need today, individual and systemic.
0: That's uh, th- that's that's actually a, a wonderful point. Many people look at the uh, the salah. Salaf I'll be pleased with all of them, as a, a sort of utopian society. And rarely do they recognize that the lessons are being unfolded in the seerah and in the generations after, that our own community becomes our booklet. And so, subhanAllah, I love that point, Imam Zay, that if it, could, if, it were,
1: no, if it were a utopian society, there'd be no need for prophetic guidance.
0: Mashallah, yeah. mashallah. No, no, mashallah. No, mashallah. I think that's something that's often missed. And I love this point that you raised about... Um, Uh, about the arrogance when it comes to Tajweed. I just want to raise one point. Um, Recently, I was able to, uh, I had the privilege of visiting a small community of Muslims in Twin Falls, Idaho. I don't know if folks know where Twin Falls, Idaho is, but it's about as far off of the map of America as you can get. And SubhanAllah, it's it's a area of refugee, active refugee resettlement, okay? And we went out there, I went out, there with uh, Brother Nihad Awad, uh, you know, in our service as CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, to try to understand some of the issues that the community was facing. And it was a tiny masjid made up of at least six different communities of refugees from different parts of the world. And uh, when Makhrib was called, this uh, community member came forward. I thought he was Turkish, and he had some of the most remarkable Tejweed, the kind of Tejweed, you know, that just you know, hits your heart and you start crying the second you hear it. And subhanAllah, subhanAllah. And afterwards, during the discussion, I asked where he was from. Turns out that this small community of, uh, of, uh, of refugees, this brother in particular, they were a, a small sub-ethnic community of Circassian Muslims that have been stateless for three generations, bouncing between Uzbekistan, Turkey, and the former Soviet republics. And it's a community that ethnographers barely have information of because they're afraid their language will go extinct soon. And SubhanAllah, they were here in Twin Falls, reciting Quran, and they had one teacher with them, six families, six or seven families. Then Salat Aisha comes forward. And to be frank, I was, I was very eager to, uh, you know, to hear the Tajweed again uh, in the Salat. And, uh, and I look and he steps behind, he steps back. Because another brother came forward from Darfur with an even more beautiful tajweed. And the harmony that existed in that masjid to me was exemplary of what we should strive towards because we have a community that's absolutely pressurized and can only depend upon each other and still gives deference um, to uh, the principle that that we only lead each other in piety and reverence for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so I often think you know there are benefits untold from being under that kind of pressure cooker situation um and sometimes we get complacent in our privilege as Muslims when we have so much benefit around us and we can squabble over certain kinds of ideas so subhanallah that was an amazing moment to to be a part of a few months ago um we have another question and uh, we'll be wrapping up soon and this one ties into actually what was going to be my final comment for you both which is we have uh we have actually a couple of questions here um about concrete action. There's literally three or four coming in right now. What to do if you had to decide, you know, if you had to decide on one thing, and I'll pressure you to ask just sort of one thing, a kind of point of nasiha beyond just suggesting, right? Just suggesting how to speak to people or how to frame or how to think. What are concrete activities that we can do amongst ourselves to, you know, to contribute to rectifying, the the situation that we're in right now, what kind of economic activities, for example, might we be able to engage in? So Imam Zaid, you gave the example of sharing zakat. So I'm going to take that one off of the table because that's a concrete recommendation. Um, but, uh, you know, concrete action, both for internally in our community and externally, you know, to overcome some of our problems. So take a second, you can think about it, but uh, something that I can literally put on a recommendation point action plan.
1: I'll go first and leave the... Uh conclusion to Ambassador Rasul. Uh, number one, I think we have to look at our personal uh, responsibility in our individual lives. A lot of times we look at the big systemic issues or the big online campaigns so we check the box and we join the move on campaign and the color or the color of change campaign. And that's the extent of our involvement. I'm not accusing anyone of doing that exclusively, but I'm sure it does happen. Uh, so individually make sure we're not uh engaging in these racist uh policies if 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 we're a single brother and two young ladies come to us and there's a clear disparity in terms of their complexion and and the one that has the darker complexion has better character and better religion that's the one you should marry and not just because the other ones and, and you're Parents and grandparents want light-skinned babies, and so she's out of the question. You know, uh, get involved in, in sponsoring uh, children and big brother, little brother campaigns. Uh, volunteer uh, to, to tutor or establishing a tutor pro, pro tutoring program in, in an inner city Area where the educational disparities between the adjoining suburbs are like night and day. So make sure you're taking individual actions <clears throat> that you are personally responsible for and then get involved in the, the big efforts and whatever way. I think we have to respect the division of labor. We shouldn't expect everyone to be uh, going out and exposing themselves to getting arrested, etc. But Everyone should find their comfort level and we should respect that division of labor. Those who aren't activists should respect those who are risking their careers, risking uh, their their personal safety. Even if we disagree with their tactics, we should respect them and we should understand and appreciate the sacrifices that they're trying to make. And if we disagree, extend the siha to them. Don't go online and this firestorm of condemnation but extend sincere advice to them. We should, those activists should respect the, the intellectuals who are uh, putting information out there that can over time change public consciousness because there is no change in society until consciousness changes. Uh, and uh, Ambassador, and I'll stop here. Ambassador Rasul can correct me if I'm wrong, but Steve Biko's Black Consciousness Movement was a critical stage towards the action of the likes of the ANC being successful. So you cannot expect that there's going to be a change in society before there's a change in public consciousness. So those who are working culturally uh, through culture, those who are working intellectually through ideas to change public consciousness, and so they're not necessarily on the front lines. They should be appreciated for what they're doing. We have to respect a healthy division of labor in our movements and struggles,
0: yeah, that's uh, that's very important because oftentimes, without that recognition, we end up coming at each other. And so, this actually this actually answers a number of the questions that were in the in the queue as well. This this general respect and individual accountability that we have to have that sometimes, you know, we're not respecting each other across lines. Um, we're not being patient enough with each other when we encounter the, the those that are still stuck in. In, you know old ways of thinking, and so I, I really do appreciate these comments. Um, but the call to action, individually, I think, is the concrete thing that we can do: volunteer, do the most basic work possible, and then so slowly build up. That's that's uh, that's extremely important. Ambassador Rasul.
2: Yes, I th- I think just to pick up where Imam Zaid left off, I think Steve Biko was to Nelson Mandela. What the ayah of the Quran, in Allah, bi khatta bi Allah does not change the condition of a people until you change that which is within yourself. If Steve Biko rang the bell of self-awareness, self-change, self-consciousness, self-identification, self-purification, it created the condition for blacks as a community to be assertive to take on the anti-apartheid struggle and to defeat white supremacy um, in in South Africa and the bigger tasks that come from that. And that's the theory of change in Islam. Uh. That's the theory of change. We have to understand that we may all be specializing, but we all specialize in a way that we change individually, we change locally, and we change systemically. And so, individually, it may be very useful for all of us to make an oath tonight that we make injustice haram for ourselves. That we shall not be racist, misogynist. We shall not be environmentally deg- degrading. We shall, um, n- and that we shall make sure that economic inequalities and so forth will be one that we will pursue to to eliminate. I think locally, we make smaller changes within communities, within a masjid, within. And we've got to find ways in which we can graduate because our default joy is from the charitable acts that we do. And that must continue because it's doing an enormous amount of good. But we also have to be changing the way in which economies are organized. And we've got to go into the intellectual heritage of Islam to find answers because the world is hungry for non-binary answers. There are those who think, okay, capitalism is in crisis, let's dust off the socialist books. Somewhere in between are the real answers. And because we are intellectually lazy, intellectually imitative, the moment that we should be uppermost We are bereft of any answers. And so we've got to find those kind of answers. And then we also have to make systemic change. And sometimes it comes by a vote. And we often make the perfect the enemy of the good. We say, no, you know, Bernie Uh is this and uh, Biden is that. And therefore, I'm not interested. Let's do a good thing that will at least nudge the system. I like that. Towards a change. Because in America, I don't see what's happening in November as a contest between personalities. It's a referendum. Do you want four more years of travel bans? Four more years of deportations? Four more years of, un- et etc. et cetera? It's Four a-
1: more years of coronavirus.
2: Four yes, more years right of up. coronavirus. And so sometimes we may dent the system without being able to change it. But the dent is important because a degree of change may mean a difference between a war with Iran, the annexation of Palestine, your degree of change. And so I think we've got to be able to look at all of that. But this is the time when we need to come up with answers about how to populate the intellectual, political, ideological vacuum that has been occasioned. By COVID-19. And, 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 and we can't be imitative and we can't be fiqh-based. Simply, we've got to go to what Imam Zaid spoke about. What does the maqasid say and how do we work our way back? Not what does the fiqh say and then work our way forward. Fiqh is important for, for our ibadah. It, it, it's immutable in that. But for mu'amalat, I think the, 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 the world is waiting for our answers. No, mashallah, mashallah. Yeah, go ahead, go
1: to, ahead, to say, Dr. Abbas, that what Ambassador Rasul mentioned about making sure we're not oppressors, that's not a personal choice, that's response to a divine commandment. Because the law says in Hadith, hmm. My servants, I've made oppression forbidden for myself, and I've made it forbidden amongst you. Do not Oppress one
0: another. Mashallah, mashallah. And both of you have said that in order to sort of make that an actuality, we have to do tremendous amounts of uh, introspection at the individual level, at the communal communal level. And so it refers me to the, the ayah that I, I think about constantly. تزكه, and those who really purify themselves and purify their souls and, and sort of steward their souls and and fight their nafs. And, and curate this kind of goodness mashallah and, and inshallah we can get there you all have both given us um a tremendous amount to think of and when i asked you to begin this conversation I said what has been the benefit of this this moment and what have you done to sustain yourselves during this moment and naturally you both mentioned gardening as a source of kind of refuge and reflection that we've been given to and this evening this morning this afternoon you both have planted numerous seeds Inshallah, for the beginning of a garden that we can grow during this time and that will have fruits and vegetables and, and outgrowth for us in many, many uh, months and years to come. I thank you both sincerely for your time and your effort, your leadership, your service and your guidance and your friendship. Um, Imam Zaid, if uh, I could ask you to close us out in du'a um, as we end this conversation. And, and before you do so, uh, thank, I'm also thanking the audience here for joining us and uh and and spending time with us i'd like to ask you imam zaid ambassador rasul make sure uh, you'll hear from me again to be able to share this discussion with your with your students and as you're making this uh this closing dua imam zaid i also ask you to do so in the in the name and the remembrance also of our beloved brother imam jamil Alamine, is at, at the central a central figure in this international conversation in this historical struggle for justice who is still unjustly incarcerated and not given even uh, some basic aspects of due process. And so for those of you watching around the world, look up Imam Jamil Al-Amin, sign the petition to have his court o- for his, his case opened up again um, and uh, and let us, uh, let us remember him. His community has been one that has nurtured me and, and given me a home here in Atlanta since I moved here 15 years ago. And so if you could remember him as we make this du'a inshallah.
1: Subhana Rabbina Ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alamin Wassalatu Wassalam Ala Sayyidil Mursaleen Sayyidina Muhammad Wa Ala Alihi Wa Sahbihi Wa Sallim Taslima Kathira Ya Allah we ask that you make this gathering of ours one that occurred under the auspices of your boundless mercy and our departure from it uh, one that uh, is qualified by your protective grace we ask that you don't leave amongst us or anyone attending listening viewing anyone that's saddened or destined to be placed on a path of ruination we ask that you strengthen our hearts that you bless, strengthen our hearts with the light of truth Strengthen our our hearts with the, the light of love for the divine and love for the creatures that our Lord has populated this earth with, both our fellow humans and other creatures that we share this abode with. We ask, Ya Allah, that you purify our intentions. We ask that you guide our words and guide our steps and protect us from any missteps We ask that you bless anyone in attendance, anyone who uh, shared in this, uh, this, this communion, to accept the best of our intentions and to forgive us for anything we might have misstated or erroneously stated. That is due to our human imperfection and our human shortcomings and our human frailty. Any good or benefit that was conveyed is owing to your boundless mercy, your infinite grace, and your your desperately, desperately needed guidance during these times. Ya Allah, we ask that you bless all of us to be relieved from the scourge of this virus that is affecting all corners of virtually all corners of this earth, that we our leaders are blessed with wisdom to approach it in the very best and most beneficial of manners that those who have succeeded in bringing this scourge under control, that their model is one to be emulated and not one to be scorned or dismissed. We pray that you open our hearts to your guidance and to your love and to the love of those who love you and to the love of those actions which deliver us and convey us unto your love We ask that you purify our hearts and purify, rectify our deeds, that you uplift our spirits. Despite all going on in the world around us, may you bless us to see the good, the good in each other, the good in the actions of dedicated, sincere men and women all over this world who are working tirelessly and sacrificing to address these problems. We ask that you... Make us all the, the solid bricks that strengthen and support each other as described by our Prophet mm-hmm. The believers are like bricks in a wall. Each one strengthens and supports the next. May we do those things, Ya Allah, to strengthen ourselves so that we can go, come together and constitute a strong wall that stands against the racism, that stands against the militarism, that stands against the chauvinism, that stands against the arrogance, that stands against the, the, the greed and the corruption that fuels so many of our conflicts, Ya Allah. We ask that you, you, you give us a sense of sound priorities to know those things that are truly important. And to understand that the most important thing is to do those things and follow the guidance that saved our soul from eternal damnation and and facilitate and open up the path and the doorways to eternal salvation. May that be our lot, ya Allah. And while doing that, may we not forget our responsibility to our fellow human beings in so many ways to work for collective healing, to work for the public health and public safety, to work for those such as Imam Jamil Al-Amin who are unjustly incarcerated, to be freed from incarceration, to be freed from, from, from the neglect that leads to sometimes life-threatening uh, uh, maladies such as a simple toothache becoming an abscess, a life-threatening abscess that the imam had to deal with, mayhem, and all others, those incarcerated in the concentration camps in China, our Uyghur brothers and sisters, those who are forced to endure a, a national prison like our brothers and sisters in Yemen are blockaded and barricaded, bombarded and exposed not just to, to COVID but to cholera and to, to, to dysentery and to typhoid and to all of these scourges, may they be liberated from that national prison. May those who are, are participating in their suffering and the suffering of others, be that in Syria or be that wherever it may be, Allah, may you open their hearts and may you guide them and make them... Enlighten people instead of, 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 of messengers and dupes of darkness. May you make them people of light. May you bless all of us, Ya Allah, as your Prophet prayed for us in a prayer that's found in all of our collections, Bukhari and Muslim, Abu Dawood, Tirmili, Ibn Majah, Nisa'i, Muwatta. Bless us, Ya Allah, with light in our speech and light in our vision and light in our hearing and light on our tongues and light in our hearts and light in our skin and light in our muscles and light in our blood and light in our hair and light in our nerves and light in our bones. Light before us and light behind us, light to our right and light to our left. Light above us Amen. and light beneath Amen. us. May we all become lights in this ever darkening world, Ya Allah, so that people can see and can find their way. We ask you this and we beseech you with the best of our deeds and the best of our intentions. Ya Allah, please accept our prayer. Oh, <laughs> Assalamu
2: alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam. Wa
0: alaikum salam. Ameen, I I mean. I mean. You got me all choked up. Jazakallah khair. alaikum everybody. We'll see you again. Alaykum. Alaykum. Thank you. Thank you everybody to, to joining us. Uh We'll be back in touch soon. See us next week at the same time inshallah. Salaamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.